Well, thank you, Pastor Carlos. And it is a privilege to be able to, to join with those bringing the gospel to the unreached places of the world. So I uh, hope next week we can uh, be generous as we give uh, to those who are bringing the gospel to those unreached places. All right, church. Well, this morning our passage is a little shorter, so we are actually going to stand and uh, read together from the Word of God. We are in, uh, so stand if you're able with me. We are in uh, Esther chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to hear from your word, even in a short and strange section like this. Help us to hear how you would have us respond and live to what you are calling us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we will dive into our passage in a minute. But first, I want to take you back to when I was 19 years old and I had my first real summer job. I worked in a restaurant called Jason's Deli, and uh, it was rough. You may have had kind of those summer jobs, or you've worked in a restaurant before, and restaurants are not very fun to work in. They can be high stress, uh, little, little gratitude as, as well. They're, they're tough places. But one thing that made my job particularly tough was I had a pretty rotten boss. I think most of us in this room, probably at some point in our lives, we have had a rotten boss. My boss uh, was pretty harsh, and uh, he was a little bit of a racist. He was no fun to be around. And I remember on one of my last days of work, I had already given my two-week notice. It was the end of the summer, and I had just clocked out. And my boss comes up to me, and he's like, Hey, Mark, I got a little task that I need some help with. Can you clock back in real quick, help me with this, and then go home? I'm thinking like, okay, it's just short, and yeah, I'll, I'll clock back, back in, and I'll help. So I clock back in, and then he laughs. And I'm like, oh no, what, what, what has just happened? And he's like, okay, I need you to go out to the dumpster. There's a bunch of soiled cardboard boxes out there. Put them in the dumpster. And of course, he was not going to do that with me. So I was not helping him in the sense of doing something alongside him. I was just going doing a task that uh, then took me over an hour to finish as I was kind of waist-deep in just a bunch of nasty boxes. It took everything in me not to quit right there on the spot and be like, I don't, I don't need to do this. Come on, dude. He was rough to work for. I found out a couple months after, after I quit that uh, he got fired for embezzling uh, a bunch of money. And it was one of those moments where you're kind of like, yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, he sounds like the type of guy that would do that. And a little part of me was like, yes. <laughs> like, he got what was coming to him. Oh, I, I struggled with that guy. 
And the truth is, all of us, at some point in our lives, will have authorities over us that we struggle with. And if it's not a work relationship, perhaps it'll be somebody in political authority over you. We all have those people. And especially as the world around us becomes increasingly secular, we're going to have political leaders both on the left and the right, or I should say, I guess from your perspective, left and the right, who don't share our values, who don't hold to a biblical worldview. Those people are going to be in authority over us. So the question then becomes, how do we relate to them? How am I supposed to interact with them? What is God calling us to do, and who is he calling us to be? The truth is, we are tempted in those situations, as Christians, to kind of huddle up together and withdraw. It's a natural temptation to say, you know what, we're just going to form our own communities. We're not going to interact with the outside world. We'll withdraw. Or we'll kind of go on the offensive and say, all right, got to conquer this guy. We're going to take him away. We're going to be the ones in authority. Now, I am not saying this morning that there aren't times where we are supposed to withdraw or, and there aren't times where we're supposed to stand up and say, here's the truth and you need to hear it. But a lot of the time, those are not the responses that God is actually calling us to have. He's calling us to do something entirely different. How ought we relate to evil authorities and systems as we await the arrival of the ultimate authority? Because we know the ultimate authority. And that's why we get this temptation to withdraw or to attack. Because we're like, well, I know that someday something better is coming, so I'm just going to wait for it, or I'm going to try to make that something better come right now. Now, we are in this series, Unexpected, Expected Deliverance. We're going through the book of Esther. So you may be wondering, how does all of this fit together? Why did I start talking about this today? especially based on the chapter that we just read, or the part of the chapter we just read. In the book of Esther, God is not mentioned. God is not mentioned. We know that God has promised deliverance for his people, but where is he? Where is he in the book of Esther? We see that God unexpectedly brings expected deliverance as his people faithfully and obediently follow him. You see, God is sovereign over all, And we'll see as we go through the book that he arranges everything in just the right way so that as his people are responsible and faithful and obedient, he rescues. He rescues. Now, last week we talked about how we respond to the evil done to us. And this part that we're looking at today is kind of the third scene in the introduction to the book of Esther. There were kind of two scenes last week, and this is the third scene. And last week we saw that we need to respond both faithfully and favorably to the evil around us. This week we're kind of furthering that idea. This week's not really separate from that. It's kind of an extension of it. And we're going to see how Mordecai, like Esther, lives out these ideas. So today, and I'm sorry that you can't see it. It's hard to get a projector to show black, so that's why it is. Today is seeking good for the bad. Seeking good for the bad. And I'm going to give you my big idea right up front again so that you can follow it as we go through. And it's this. You'll see it at the bottom of your worship order. God calls his people to seek the good of the non-believing world. God calls his people to seek the good of the non-believing world. So let's dive in right now to our, our first big point. 
And it's this, God's people seek the good of the non-believing world by not withdrawing from it or overthrowing it. God's people seek the good of the non-believing world by not withdrawing from it or overthrowing it. If you didn't get this, you can write it down later. We'll, uh, it'll be back up on the screen. So let's, let's look at our text, starting in verse 19. I'll read it again. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Okay, so this is kind of the first action that's oriented around Mordecai. And he's sitting at the gate. So you're like, okay, what's he doing? Is he just kind of loitering, kind of hanging out at the gate? What's going on with this? Well, in the ancient world, the gate was where legal proceedings happened. It's oftentimes where the king would make decisions or the elders of the town would make decisions. So here we have Mordecai being in an official place. We see later he's actually one of the king, King Ahasuerus's officials. So he's, he's at work, basically. That's what he's doing. He's at work doing his job, being an official in the court of a wicked, terrible king, King Ahasuerus, who we were introduced to last week. Well, then we get a little bit of a problem. In verse 21, In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. So we don't know how he heard this, but he does. Somehow he is aware of the plot, to, this plot to kill King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, if you're more familiar with that name. This creates a little bit of tension in the story. Because how, do you, how would you expect Mordecai to react? This is the guy, King Ahasuerus, who has abducted the girl that he has effectively raised as his daughter. This guy, his life is threatened. I think he'd probably be justified in thinking, well, I don't really like that guy. He abducted Esther. He raped her. Well, maybe he can just get what's coming to him. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Let him be harmed. Or maybe he'll join in on the plot. That would seem reasonable, right? King Ahasuerus isn't a good dude. It's tempting when we see evil around us, being directed toward those who deserve it, to kind of just say, yeah, I'll let it happen. Or I'll help make it happen. We feel that as Christians. Because we have a sense of justice. Justice is a good thing. And we long for it. But oftentimes, we're not really willing to wait for God's justice, and we ignore a lot of what God has already said about how we are to respond to the evil above us, the evil around us. Well, as we read earlier, Mordecai doesn't respond in that way. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai here reports the plot. He saves the king. But also, I want to point out here, he doesn't get any reward. Nothing. No commendation for saving the king. This comes into play later on in the book. But at this point in time, nothing 
happens for him, other than his name getting written down in the Chronicles of the King. Well, what's the point of this section? What are we supposed to do with a section like this? It's kind of, it's a story that, it's, it's not like an exciting, riveting story. It's just a little kind of chunk. It's part of a grander, exciting story, but this little part is kind of like, oh, okay, interesting. This sets up things for later on, but what do I do with this? Well, right here, the author's trying to show us exactly what kind of man Mordecai is. He doesn't seek revenge. He's not seeking reward or recognition. He's loyal. He's seeking the good of a wicked, pagan overlord. And this is portrayed as a good thing. And ultimately, he's also serving as a model for God's people who are awaiting the return or the arrival of their good king. Now, I want to point out that there is a danger. When we read Old Testament narrative, we don't just read it and say, okay, what do the characters do, and the good ones I'm going to follow and be like them, and the bad ones I'm not going to follow and not be like them. That's not really the way the narrative is supposed to work. However, at this point in Esther, it is. So, as we read today, Mordecai is held up as an example. Because the whole book of Esther is answering the question of what are we supposed to do when we're <coughs> excuse me, in exile? How do we live? Who are we as the people of God? Who is God calling us to be? So, the behavior of the characters in the story are the ways that we ought to be living. That is not always the case in every book. A lot of books are kind of declaring and showing God's redemptive work in history. And Esther is showing God's redemptive work in history, but it's ultimately pointing to Christ's redemptive work. And Mordecai and Esther are kind of serving ex as examples of the way that God is. All right, so let's ask the question, why does Mordecai respond this way? Mordecai responds faithfully and favorably towards King Ahasuerus. Why? Why would he do this? doesn't seem like there would really be that much of an incentive for him to be like this. Well, ultimately, Mordecai is being faithful to what God commanded the exiles to do over a hundred years prior through the prophet Jeremiah. Remember, God's people were exiled from the promised land in 586 when Babylon ultimately conquered them. Babylon was then conquered by Persia around 540-539. Some of God's people got to go back to the promised land, but some of them stayed. Many of them stayed. Many of them even went to Persia, and that's where Mordecai finds himself. And through the prophet Jeremiah, when God's people experience this exile in Babylon, God says some very particular things to his people. So we're going to pick it up in Jeremiah chapter 29. In Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 4, God says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here's the message. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And here's the key. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. So here Jeremiah 
is telling God's people, you're in exile. You are awaiting the promised king. You are awaiting this glorious return into your land. How do you live? Live in a way that is good for the city. You make a home there. But this isn't your permanent home. But you're going to be there a while. So make a home. You're awaiting a better city whose builder and foundation is God. We see that in Hebrews. So we make a home here, but this isn't our home. We await a better home. But we are here for the long haul. We're here for a long time. Now here's the tension in this. You know, it's, it's one thing to read this and even think about us as Christians awaiting the return of our king, and we're living in the United States of America, pretty different from Babylon in some respects. And it's easy for us to look at this and be like, okay, yeah, I got it. I'll seek the good of the place that I live as I await Christ's return. Gotcha, Pastor. Okay. But remember, the Babylonians were wicked. The people receiving this would have remembered firsthand as the Babylonians came in and slaughtered so many of the people. As they ripped open pregnant women. As they starved Jerusalem under siege. They would remember this think, oh, we're supposed to seek their good? This isn't seek the good of the government that you like so much and lets you elect the leaders that you want. No, this is seek the good of those wicked people who have killed your friends, neighbors, and family. Seek their good. Pray for them. As you seek their good, it'll be your good as well. That strikes a little bit different, does it not? And Mordecai is taking this seriously. Yeah, the good of that Persian king, they're the new overlords, no longer the Babylonians, now it's the Persians. They were somewhat better, but we see in the historical and biblical narrative, they're not that much better. We saw it last week in King Ahasuerus. He's not a good dude. But Mordecai is listening to what Jeremiah said. And so as we get to this point in Esther and we read this section, the Jew who would be familiar with the scriptures, is immediately thinking of, oh yeah, Jeremiah 29. Mordecai is living out exactly how God's people are supposed to live in exile. So God's people seek the good of the non-believing world by not withdrawing from it or overthrowing it. So I want to talk about this idea of withdrawal and overthrowing here just a little bit. Because the first temptation really is to withdraw. Mordecai could have stood by but the truth is, and for our reality as well, he and us are still in the world. He lived in Persia. We live in the world. And by world, I'm not talking about this physical realm around us. I mean the forces and systems around us. That world. Not physical creation. Physical creation is groaning and longing for the restoration of all things. But the scriptures, when they speak of the world, they're generally referring to the systems. And they are referred to as evil. Almost continuously. The world is bad. Bad, bad, bad. It's an evil place. An evil conglomeration of ideas and practices and cultures. It's the world. Our location as well. It's still the world. No matter how nice it looks, it's still the world. It's still broken. It still opposes 
the Lord. See what John or see what Jesus says through John in John chapter 17. Jesus is praying for the disciples and ultimately us, those who would come after him. Jesus says this, not just about the disciples, but you and me, because he's, he's talking about the people who are going to come later. Starting in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He's not talking about flesh and blood or physical things. We obviously are those things. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we are not of the world, but we are in the world, and we have been sent into that world. We're not just living here by chance. You don't find yourself in your little corner just because. God put you there. He sent you there. We have been sent into the world, and we are called to seek the good of that world, to Babylon. We aren't called to just withdraw. Because you are there for a reason. And if you withdraw because you're so just frustrated with what's around you and you don't want it to touch you, well then you can't touch it. And yes, we are called to refrain from evil, to abstain from it, and to not be involved with it. But we aren't called to be absent from the world. We've been sent into it. So we don't withdraw and we don't overthrow the world. Mordecai could have joined in. He'd been like, oh, hey, you two eunuchs who are going after the king? I'd like a piece of that. Come on, get me in on the action. And by overthrowing the world in our context, you know, we don't have a king that we're going to go after. But I, I do mean taking control or trying to take control of the systems and then expecting to build a paradise here. Now, we live in a democratic system, so absolutely, please participate. Please have an influence. I think that's part of the way that we as Christians can seek the good of the world around us. It's trying to get the values and the things that God has declared are good to be reflected in the wider culture. However, if we expect that us placing those values and us being in positions of influence will somehow bring paradise here and keep evil away, well, then we are fooling ourselves. Because God says evil is always at the door, nations will rise and fall, and that we as believers should continue to just persevere, trust the Lord, and expect Him to be faithful. We expect His deliverance. Things will go from bad to worse, from worse to maybe less worse than good, and then back again. And we as God's people just continue to be faithful. We don't seek to overthrow the world or try to get rid of it, because it won't. We will always have the world until Christ comes again, and he has all his kingdom here in this place. The world will be here. So we don't overthrow it, and we don't withdraw from it. All right, let's get, let's get moving. We've got to move a little bit quicker. Moving kind of in our second idea today. If that's what God calls us to do, why? Why are we called to be that way, to behave in such a manner? It's one thing to say, this says the Lord, or thus says the Lord. But if I don't understand God's heart in it, then it just becomes a command that I find myself unable to do. So why does God command his people to not overthrow or withdraw? First idea is this, God sought our good when we opposed him. He sought our good when we opposed him. In essence, this is who God is. 
This is His nature. He didn't seek to withdraw from us. Ultimately, He will overthrow the systems. But as we're going to see, we're going to see, Jesus obediently submitted to evil and wicked systems. And what, did that, what happened because of that? He was led to His death. But we also had redemption because of that. We'll talk about that more. Let's look at Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. Paul says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Did you see those words, this idea of foolishness? Following our own passions and desires? Who does that sound like? Ahasuerus. We saw last week, that's exactly what he's like. He was a fool, with a capital F, led by his desires. Paul says that we are just like that. Foolish, slaves to our desires. But what was God's response to that? He loved us anyways. He saved us, not because we cleaned up our act, but because of His rich mercy, His loving kindness. This is what God is like. So when God says to exiles in Babylon and then later Persia, seek the good of the city, save a wicked king, that's what God Himself has done for us. Secondly, God often redeems evil through the obedience of of his people. God often redeems evil through the obedience of his people. We so long for God to just come and wipe out evil. And one, one day he will. We take heart in that. What a glorious, beautiful day that will be when all evil is brought to account. But in the here and now, God often deals with evil through the obedience of his people and he uses it for His glory and our good. Think about Christ. Christ was willingly obedient. He suffered. And that brought about our good. That's the biggest mistrial of justice there has ever been in the history of the world. It's been the only innocent person. The only innocent person in the world was murdered. And so for us, how can God use our obedience because we see that God was obedient himself to the point of death for the good of his people. See this in Romans 5, verse 19. For as by the one man's obedient or by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, he's speaking of Adam, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Because Jesus was obedient to go all the way to die even though he didn't deserve to die, but he was being obedient to God's plan and God's desire for him to suffer and die on our behalf because he was willing to say, Pilate, I submit to your authority even though I have authority over you. He went all the way to the cross for you and for me. I praise God for that. Isn't that incredible that this is the God that we serve? That this is the way that he behaves? I've said it before and I'll say it again. God never asks us to do something that he himself would not do or that is outside of his character. 
So when we seek the good of the evil ones above us, God has a plan in that. One day he will vanquish that evil. But for now, God is working in an incredible way that we would least expect. It's unexpected, expected deliverance. Where do you need to be obedient? Where in your life are you struggling to be obedient? Maybe it's to a crummy boss. Or you look at a politician and you're like, I don't want to have anything to do with that guy. But how can you be a faithful citizen anyways? These commands are all reiterated in the New Testament. We have Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul again says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You know the emperor that both Peter and Paul are talking about here? It's Nero. Wicked Roman emperor who sought the extermination of Christians. Wanted to see them persecuted. That Nero. Both Peter and Paul tell us to honor that guy. I don't know about you. Sometimes I can get pretty frustrated with our political leaders, both left and right. Both of them. Yet, God calls us to honor them, to be model citizens, to be the best citizens that there are. When you feel like you can't do that, when you're frustrated, just remember God has done that, and His Holy Spirit resides inside of you, and He can give you that strength. He will give you that strength now to be that type of person. And then when we do that, we get to show the character of God to the watching world. That's a privilege. When we are behaving in this way, we are showing the world, this is what God is like. So God calls us to behave in this way, not just arbitrarily, but it's from His character. And then as we live in that way, praise be to God, others get to see what our God is like. All right, last section of your outline. I want to show four ways, or talk about four ways that we seek the good of the evil world. These are all, again, kind of very... I would, I'll say loosely based on kind of how Mordecai responded to this situation. Before I list those four ways, I, I want to note three things. Uh, the first thing, I, I want you to hear me clearly. I am not saying that we are supposed to be friends with the world. There should be a general discomfort that we have with the world around us. We should look at it and feel like, ah, this, this doesn't feel right. There's wickedness around us. That's the first thing. Second thing, there is a tension. There's a tension that we should experience with, we're both called to call out evil. I think of very bold and faithful pastors who live in China and who are willing to criticize an evil government that keeps them, tries to keep them from worshiping together. 
and they face imprisonment and even death for that. There's that tension there of calling out evil, but then also of being faithful and quiet servants. God calls us to do both. And it requires maturity and wisdom and humility to know in which circumstance one of those, which of those is required. It's not easy. I also want to be clear, I'm not, I'm not speaking of what to do when authorities are committing heinous evil. Okay? If the Nazis in charge of you are calling you to be a guard in the concentration camp, you say no. Christians cannot do that. We cannot be faithful and participate in the evil. You end up going to the concentration camp yourself. And praise be to God that we have a Savior who will one day restore all things and that this is not our home. So we can go and experience the persecution and death because it's not our home. So we don't participate in the evil. But when, when governments and your, your work boss over you is doing what they should as God-given stewards who bring order to the world, even a guy like Nero or a guy like Xerxes, both of those guys, when they're doing what they ought, bringing order, then yes, we serve faithfully. And I also want us to recognize that we are in Babylon. We may not feel like we're in Babylon, but we're in Babylon. In the book of Revelation, we see the New Jerusalem contrasted with Babylon. And Babylon is representative of all the systems of the world. All of it. And that includes us right here. United States of America, Iowa, Sioux County. And that is not to say that it is all bad. I'm thankful that we live here as opposed to somewhere else. Love it. We are so blessed. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that this is the heavenly kingdom because it's not. All right. Four ways to seek the good of the evil world. First off, do your duty. Do your duty. By that I mean basically you're doing your job to the best of your ability. That's what Mordecai was doing. Hey, he's just doing his duty. He's kind of sitting in the gate, doing whatever his job is. And he reports evil when he finds it. Do your duty. As far as you're able, don't undermine the authorities. That's part of doing your duty. If everybody else around you is seeking to undermine your boss, don't join in. Don't be that type of guy. Also, in doing your duty, don't over-spiritualize things in, attempt, in an attempt to do your duty. Sometimes we're like, well, what my coworkers and my boss really need is the gospel. Okay, that's true. The people around you need the gospel more than anything else. But sometimes we can use that as an excuse to not be a good worker or employee or citizen. Let's not fall into that trap. Let's both share the gospel and do our due diligence. We of all people should be trusted and relied upon in our nation and in our places of work. Your boss should think you are one of the best workers he or she has. Even if you feel like you're not great at your job, you should be a hard worker and faithful. Okay, so do your duty. Secondly, don't participate in the world's evil. Don't participate in the world's evil. And I'm talking more passively speaking. So if your employer or the government asks you to do something morally wrong, you say, no, I can't do that, no. If they're celebrating something that we cannot celebrate, you say, no. I think it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar tells them to bow down to his idol, his golden image. They say no. The golden image of our day is self-autonomy or independence, me being able to define who I am. And we see that specifically this month during Pride Month. 
Our whole culture just goes bananas, kind of celebrating. And, and yes, sexuality, but the, the problem is deeper. It's me defining who I am. That's never gone well in the history of mankind. God has given us our bodies. And yes, we have fallen bodies that sometimes do not work as God originally intended in the garden. That's true. But we then don't have the right to say, well, it's not functioning the way I want, so I'm just going to declare that I want to do whatever I want to do, whoever I want, be whoever I want to be. It is God's goodness that He has given us a way to be. And so for us as believers in this world, as the culture around us goes a little crazy, especially this month, but 12 months out of the year, and we have our Pride Month, we don't participate and in doing that, we get to serve as a light in the darkness. Because we don't bow down to the idols around us. Similarly, so we don't participate in evil, we're passive. But then I also think there's an active component to this where we need to oppose evil. We take action. So even if you have a boss that treats you poorly, if you have a client who's trying to cheat your boss, you do what you can to stop it. Even if you don't like your boss, don't be like, ah, he's going to get what's coming to him. No, stop it. Stop the evil, even if you feel like someone deserves it. You need to be vocal against evil. Not obnoxious and in a prideful way, but a truthful and humble way. So if one of your coworkers is stealing, report it. Don't be like, well, I don't want to be a narc. If you see evil, stop it. Take an active role in stopping it. Lastly, expect God to work. You see, Mordecai's behavior ultimately sets the stage for Ahasuerus to trust him. And because Ahasuerus trusts Mordecai and knows that Mordecai saved his life, God's people are ultimately delivered. So for us, as we endure abuse or no recognition, we need to expect that God is using that somehow, some way, even if we never get to see it. We need to expect God's deliverance. So as you are being obedient, where God has called you, look for open doors. Look for open doors to share the gospel. Look for open doors to talk to people about who Christ is. Look for open doors to be a light in the darkness. And we don't do our duty. We don't oppose evil. We don't serve well for a reward. We serve because that's the way God has treated us. So, big idea for today. Hopefully, you've seen this by now. God calls his people to seek the good of the non-believing world. Church, we live in an evil world, and how we ought to relate to it as we await the perfectly good authority from heaven, that how comes from God himself. We look to him and see how he was. He's loved us. He's reached out to us. He was humbly obedient to wicked authorities as well. So we must do the same. God sought our good. That's who he is. So let us do that to the evil around us. Let me pray. Father, we praise your name. We thank you that you are not like us, that you are faithful, you are good, and you are kind. Lord, we praise you that even when we ran away from you, even when we were foolish, you washed us. You made us whole. You sent Christ to die for us. We thank you for that beautiful and beloved truth. Help us, Lord. Please help us to be the most faithful, the most obedient, the most dutiful 
workers and citizens in this place. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.